so so imagine that this gentleman who's dying of of metastatic lung cancer is wearing these goggles and he is looking at the home that he grew up in 80 years before and he's able to to turn around and see the neighbor's house across the street push a button wander down the street and the the joy the sheer joy and excitement and smile it was almost it was almost like he was a child again forgetting about the fact that he can't breathe and that he's in chronic pain and that he's anxious about what's coming we we are, we're allowing people to forget about what they're experiencing in 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 that the struggles that they're in the midst of and have have time of pure joy which is just amazing to be part of Dr. Bob Uslander in California. His practice is specialized in end-of-life care, but in a very different way than what we're used to. When I first approached him, I was very curious about a research project he was working on in virtual reality, and it turned out that it's actually a very small portion of all the great things he's involved in. But that was the starting point for our conversation. I had been working for the past year with virtual reality, but in the context of surgery, and I was very curious to see what does that look like when applied to end-of-life care. So we start there. So the, so we're working with VR, with virtual reality, not necessarily in terms of educating people or showing options, but we're, we are um, involved in a study. It's actually a, a, a pilot study uh, that was funded by a grant from Microsoft. And the, the idea is to introduce virtual reality experiences to people who are at end of life or dealing with serious uh, challenging illnesses to look at the, at the um, improvement in quality of life, reduction of anxiety, stress, isolation. So we have patients who are dealing with end stage illnesses who we have volunteers going and, and guiding them through a virtual reality experience it could be a travel related experience where they can go see you know see the home that they grew up in for example or this you know and be able to wander around the street of their hometown or go to paris or you know the grand canyon and then there's also content that's more meditations and you know soothing uh, there's a, a wide array a wide array but what we're doing is we're measuring their heart rate, their oxygen levels, their respiratory rate, their pain scale, anxiety scales, and we're, we're looking at how the actual VR experience has an impact on that, both in the very short term and then over time. So it's actually really cool to, to see these people in their 70s, 80s, 90s who are experiencing something completely new, and and it's, it's just really... Um, so far, we're seeing great, great responses. We don't have all the data, but it's it's a it's a great study to be part of because I love being innovative and having another tool to be able to offer people to just enhance their life. Some have you seen some people change their minds because suddenly they were aware of something they hadn't because of that tool? Uh, we we've actually just gotten this this started and you know started seeing the patients. I certainly have had patients change their minds about wanting to die soon because of other things that have been introduced, music therapy, 
massage, reiki, acupuncture, just sometimes just getting them connected with other human beings who are kind and attentive and loving will make people want to stick around longer. That's certain. I've certainly seen that happen. Is this ability to live in the in a moment of pure joy related to making decisions, or it's just the ability to take a break and not be in that? Well, I think the decisions it, it, it influences their decisions if they can have enough moments of joy that that allow them to believe that the quality of their life is still is still adequate to deal with the the struggles that are inherent in their in their illness. Dr. Uslander's focus is actually not technological. Technology is only a tool, one of many in his toolkit. And this is when it gets really interesting. A lot of people, when they're talking about these new technologies, um, they, they think primarily about the technology and sometimes they forget a little bit about the human. And that's definitely something that Dr. Uslander is not doing. A lot of our discussion actually focused on the human being and on the experience of end-of-life care. Why is it that sometimes it goes really well? Why is it that sometimes it doesn't? And what are the kind of things that we could be doing within this existing system? You'll hear people talk about the end of life experience for a loved one, their spouse, their parent, their child, and, and say that every, it was beautiful and everything went really well. And so you'd think that, wow, we've got it figured out. We've got, you know, we've got everything that we need. But then you'll turn around and the, and the person on the other side of you will share their experience, which was exactly the opposite. They felt like nobody cared, nobody was there for them, and they struggled all the way through. So how does that happen? Well, it happens because there's relatively little um, oversight and regulation. It happens because there, there's such a, a turnover of, of staff because it's so difficult to work in the system and in the whole, in the, in the, certainly in the hospice world that you can find a, you know, a nurse, your nurse who comes out to take care of you could be a, a fresh grad who's really enthusiastic but has no experience or it can be a person who's towards the end of their career and they're just trying to get through their day and they just, you know, they're overwhelmed and burned out. Or it could be somebody who's just like an angel and there's no guarantee, I mean, there's no way to, to um, know who's going to show up for you. So that's one of the problems. Um, I think there's part, so if I, so if I, I let's, let's talk about a, a specific patient. Um, not, I'm not going to talk about a specific patient of mine, but sort of a hypothetical patient who's got, you know, let's say they've got cancer, lung cancer. Um, they go through, you know, they, get, they go to the oncologist and the oncologist and the radiation oncologist, everyone's giving them advice and, and um, how to best manage that. And for the most part, people are, are being guided and pushed towards doing treatment because that's what the system is designed to do. At a certain point, the, you know, the patients are struggling, they're dealing with the side effects of the treatment, they're, sometimes they're hospitalized in between because 
of the complications and partly because they have advanced cancer and partly because they're getting poisoned, you know, with, with medications. And then they're kind of in and out. And at a certain point, they, they feel like they don't want to continue down that path. Sometimes they get referred to palliative care where they can maybe talk to doctors who are able to kind of dive in and, and help understand what it is that they truly want, what's really important to them, and explain the whole sort of spectrum of options available. Um, but that doesn't happen in many cases. There isn't enough palliative care providers and programs. That's also fairly hit or miss. Even in the ones that exist are often very inundated and getting appointments can be very difficult. So, um, so at a certain point, those patients may decide that I, I just don't want to continue going down that path. It, I don't have any guarantees that it's going to actually prolong my life or make it better, give me more quality and they're struggling. And the only option at that point for the doctors know of is to refer them to hospice. And you know what happens when people hear that word immediately they they're in this state of of um kind of closing off they they feel like it's a death sentence they have image you know and not not universally but for the most part is that your experience experience when people hear hospice they're immediately they think oh, i'm just going to get like hooked up to an iv of morphine and 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 die that's that's it right um so that's not necessarily the truth about hospice but but it is it is limited right there are limitations significant limitations and not everybody wants to deal with those limitations not everybody wants to give up sort of therapies physical therapy nutrition therapy um not everybody wants to have to give up their doctor and most of the time when somebody gets admitted to hospice they no longer that doctor is no longer caring for them and they they get a, a, assigned to some doctor who may never see them or, or talk with them um, and there, there's just there's there's constraints they that the people may not be comfortable with, and it may not be appropriate for them. But there's no but there's really relatively little else for them, so they struggle, and they and, and they 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 get into this sort of no man's land where either they they go on hospice and they sort of give up most of their rights and and connections and develop new connections, but with people that are unknown to them working within a system that is constrained and limited by Medicare and by insurance, or they have relatively little support and they, and they flounder and they struggle through the last weeks or months of, of a difficult life. Is this dichotomy mainly happening because um, of, of money, basically, because of the way the funding structure functions, you have to pick one or the other? So the dichotomy happens because there isn't anything in between. There's nothing, there's, there's, no, there's no mechanism or system that's, that's in place to support the people that are in the middle. That this palliative care concept, which is a great concept theoretically, is designed to to be that sort of that that middle ground, that 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 bridge. Um, but it it's there isn't a, a compensation model that works for it yet, um, and people are still struggling. So the, the insurance companies that offer palliative care, well, there's still insurance companies that are designed to make a profit, and so every 
all their decisions really seem to be motivated by what's the best, what's, what's you know, best for their bottom line. Um, not to say that there aren't caring people working in those companies, and I know some of those people, but they're also responsible to investors and, you know, and shareholders. And, um, and so, so, so this gap is still, is, is needing to be filled. And the other, I think the other big piece, the, the thing that I've discovered in my practice and through my career is that there is no mechanism to take care of the families. And that's a huge gap and something that we're trying to really address. Families are doing their best to support their loved ones who are dealing with these complex issues. They have questions, they have fears, they have um, you know, things that come up at different times of the day or night. And there's no real mechanism for them to get hurt, to be heard and to be supported and to, gu- and to be guided. Um, so they make decisions based on fear and based on and, and on limited information, and and that has a significantly negative impact. I think I think that the system, if the if the system could figure out a way to just really support families who are struggling to care for their loved ones, it would save an enormous amount of of um, money and inappropriate hospitalizations, inappropriate ER visits. Um, and a lot of a lot of angst. Right, um, and you, you do make an interesting point because, from an economic standpoint, I did read uh, some studies that came up, and you, you can actually save money if, if you understand earlier on, you know, the options and, and what people would choose. And one thing that was very striking for me was, from an emotional standpoint, they were looking at the patient's uh, choices in regards to uh, chemotherapy, and they were saying. Um, I think that the numbers changed about 70% or there's a huge gap and I'll, I'll go back and look at it and, and link to it in the notes. But it was very interesting because before going to chemo, they had this um, view and they had ranked the things that mattered to them. And one of them was really uh, how long will they live? And after only the first time, the first visit that they go in the first session, it actually changed the ranking and the top was the quality of life. Mm. And so it seems like people very early on catch on to the fact that there are different options and different things that matter to them. And one of the things I was trying to envision is what does it look like in terms of conversations, in terms of questions, in terms of decisions? Because from the outside and not living this reality, I tend to think, well, it looks like people deep down, maybe they know what they want, right? Like how... But nobody asks them. Yeah. Why is there such a need to have that discussion and not just someone at home thinking about it? Why, Why does it take two? Well, because I, I think in general people give up their give, give up their um, authority to the to doctors, to the medical profession, the people who they, they want to be guided, they want to be told what to do. They might think they might they might think something deep down, or feel something deep down, but they question it. They don't they don't know, and so they rely on the experts who have the information, and they also they they cling to a certain amount of hope and and the physicians and the doc the people who they're who they're are are counseling or guiding them uh also feed into that little bit of hope it's so the reason that the reason that doctors guide patients and families towards certain treatments and decisions is multifactorial um some of it's financial Right, the the you, the system doesn't make money when you don't treat people. 
Um, some of it, it, a lot of it is just a sense of discomfort with saying I, that we don't have anything more for you. It's easier to say, well, we can try this other thing. We don't know that it's going to help, but it, you know, there's a small chance um, that it could. it could. It could slow things down and give you a bit more time. What they don't talk about necessarily is what that time is going to be like, right? So they kind of gloss over that. Maybe part of it is the discomfort of, of those conversations. Part of it is the lack of time, that there just isn't enough time to go over everything in, in these visits, the way, the, the way that things are structured. Um, and some of it is just if the patients and families don't press it, it's just easier for the doctors and the nurse practitioners and everyone to, to sort of gloss over those things and kind of move, move everything forward. And then when the patients finally come and say, you know, really, this is, is this, is, isn't there anything else? Or this is really too much for me to bear. Then it's like, sorry, here's hospice, right? In my process, um, because you know, in my practice, I don't work within the system. I don't work with insurance, so I don't have 15-minute visits or 30-minute visits. My visits are typically as long as they need to be—an hour, two hours—to um, address the concerns and issues with the family and the entire kind of team of of caregivers and loved ones. And the first thing that the first thing we we get to is like what's the reality of the situation? What is, what's the truth, you know, and not just the truth about what your illness is and what the, what the kind of the details, but who's, who's a part of your experience, who's there to support you. What are your resources? You know, do you have, do you have financial resources to get assist a care in the home or just all the pieces. And then I, and then I really actually, before I even do that, I, I end up spending a lot of time just getting to know this person as an individual, who they are, where they're from, where they're, I mean, the first conversation, the first, the first part of the conversation is usually where are you from? Like, where do you, where'd you grow up? Where'd you go to high school? What was your career? Who's, who's your, you know, who are your people? All of that. A lot of times we find commonalities too. We find common ground, which is really nice because that establishes a certain amount of trust and a connection. And, and, and then we're both, I mean, I'm, I'm, able to understand them and who they are and and we identify what's most important to them and that's i think that often is missed in in healthcare in general what's truly the most important thing and what are your what are your goals and and then from there then you can kind of help to identify the appropriate steps going forward um, but the things that that are that don't happen largely because of the lack of time the 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 amount of sort of frustration and and struggle that the provide healthcare providers are going through is they don't make these deep personal connections. They don't find out what's really important to people. So they have a hard time making the best decisions going forward. Well, when you say things that are important, and is it things like, I want to see the graduation of my son? Things like that. Travel, like well, so, so those tend to be like the more the goals, mm -hmm. the things. So, so what's important is like, is it time with your family? Is it um, being able to watch the news every day? Is it being able to eat chocolate ice cream? Is it being able to um, be independent enough so that you don't have somebody having to do personal care? I mean, there are people, everyone has a different threshold. Mm -hmm. 
of what's acceptable to them. So that what's in, by what's important, I mean what makes life meaningful for you and worth living, and and what is the threshold. And and when you really talk about that, you understand different people have different thresholds. Um, and and within an illness, during the course of an illness, your threshold may change. So you need to continue to check in and reevaluate what's important. And then we create these goals, long-term goals, short-term goals, um, and then help kind of put a plan in place to achieve those. You actually tapped into one of the, the greatest questions I have, which is this idea of variability. I think there's a notion that one person is different from another, but even when I look at an individual, right, and I think you see this a lot in, in children, but I, I expect to see it also in, in you know, grown-ups, quote-unquote, you may think you want something now and next week it's a different experience of life and i i wonder how do you design a plan for that and and when do you know that this is really what they want versus this is how they feel now and it may be temporary you need to keep checking in with them right as long as you as long as you're able to and as long as they're able to communicate of course everything becomes uh different when people lose the ability to communicate either temporarily or permanently we spend a lot of time going over people's advanced healthcare directives and i have people coming into the office just to talk about what they want or don't want and and making sure that their healthcare agents are very aware and that they've had the right conversations and that their all, all their documents are are done properly to protect them. If they if they're able to communicate, those things are unnecessary. They don't they don't come into play. We just ask them, what do you want? What don't you want? They said previously you said you would never would never want to be intubated if you couldn't breathe. You, is that how you still feel? If they're not if they're not able to communicate with you, then you have to rely on what they've shared in their documentation, the conversations they've had with their loved ones or you know the healthcare agent. And sometimes they haven't done that adequately and it falls on their healthcare agent to try to determine what that person would say if they were directing the show right now. So those conversations are really, really important and it requires time and commitment to, to have those conversations so that you know that you're truly honoring the wishes of that individual. Yeah, and and it doesn't happen a lot of time. Yeah, and it's beautiful what you mentioned because you, you did say like the, the first session you were actually spending time with people and I think that's that's one thing if you're not spending time then it's very hard to, to learn. It's impossible. I, I love the approach you have because you know when you're looking at mo models like Agile and so on where you have a lot of reiterations, it almost feels like a mini experiment because at the end of the day, each person is their first encounter with that experience, right? So because I haven't been dead before, how do I know what I want? And I, I think it's reassuring to think that you may do cycles of little changes, little attempts, and then if you change your mind, you can always adjust the course and, and you know, by keep keeping those modifications, you can sure. build the, the, the kind of path again. Um, one thing I also saw, which I think you've probably seen also, uh, it was like the traditional model versus the new uh, ways of looking at palliative care, and you see these curves, um, we'll also put a, a link to that. But it's very interesting because they, they intersect, right? It used to be you're in the hospital, you're either treated with healthcare, right? Or it's hospice and only palliative care. And now they have these overlapping things where you start the discussion earlier on, even though you're really going into treatment. And as time progresses and those lines cross, you end up with more palliative care and gradually toning down. The mm -hmm. Ideally. Yeah, and I was I was trying to 
figure out because also from from the patient's perspective i was hearing a lot of things like um it's a roller coaster i've heard this expression a lot an emotional roller coaster where one day i'm good the next day i'm not and then i'm in despair and then i'm in hope and it seems very difficult to to grasp how what is the mindset of people and are they able to shift between this hope and and you know belief that things will be okay and then at the same time hold that space inside them that says you know what if it's not okay here's a plan b is is it easy for them to shuffle between these emotions and, and these realities for some people i think that's a high that's highly variable um for some people who you know that's just the way they are they're pragmatic they've lived their life that way that they just kind of take things as they come um for other people they don't have the same kind of inner resiliency and and experience to draw upon and and they and they struggle emotionally and it can be like a like a whiplash part of it also depends on the family and the loved ones the people the friends how they're handling things and kind of goes back to my previous comments if the, if people don't have resources and support then they don't then then they there's no way to get appropriate accurate information their their emotions are high their fear is is up and everything is more likely to feel like just this big overwhelming crisis when people have a you know have support that it usually doesn't get to the crisis point because because they've we've had the conversations about different things that could happen how they should be handled addressed we've we've been proactive about about having the things in place to to manage situations it's it's when th- people are unprepared either emotionally because the conversations haven't happened or physically because they don't have the right medications or other resources available that's when things get out of control and so our system is often very reactionary as opposed to preparing you know what i i had both of my parents died in the last few years and i had personal experience of not having things in place for when my mom was dying and struggling and having you know having to go through incredibly intense and traumatic situations to get her comfortable on a couple of different occasions i learned through that experience what to how to prepare what to be thinking about and to avoid having other people go through those same things so almost like a checklist because the way you're you're talking about it, it looks yeah like- yeah it ends up being kind of a checklist and often it's things that that aren't on a typical checklist even hospice right they because they're well for whatever reason they're they often aren't aren't thinking that far a- ahead of the various things that may end up happening and then they're trying and then they have to come back and try to fix it after the fact and there'll be a frantic people waiting waiting for a hospice nurse to or somebody to come out and and provide support um are you are you hearing the 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 background bings that are coming in i've got this alerts is that uh, yeah i can actually go let me just i'm going to go and close that program so that'll stop happening okay give me just a sec though cuz i need to check on something okay so hopefully we can edit this little portion out um There you go. Someone's trying to get my attention, so hold on just a sec.
Okay, sorry about that. I am back. All right, so I have, I think, three last uh, big questions here, and then feel free if you want to add anything else. Um, the, the first one I'm really interested in knowing is, so back in, uh, in that flow, as a provider, when you're looking at um, interventions that you have to do, you're, you're talking, and we've talked a lot about uh, how patients might want to prepare, how families want to prepare. Is there also either a logistic or maybe emotional or, or factual even preparation that a doctor or someone who's really providing care should? Um, should yeah, well, it's a really great question um, because it does, it, it's, when you're taking care of people, I mean, in many areas of healthcare, for physicians, nurses, therapists, the whole the whole range, social work, the whole range of providers, are dealing with a lot of complex emotions and and um, you know difficult difficult scenarios. Um, so it can be emotionally taxing. In my work, dealing with people who are truly at the end of their life, I'm off, I'm with people, and they're, when they take their last breath, often. I'm having conversations with people who are basically begging me to help them die on a, on a regular basis. Um, so I, I, I think that it's difficult to do this kind of work when you're working within a system where you don't feel honored and, and cared for. And that happens a lot. I think in, you know, we talk about physician burnout or moral distress or whatever terms are, are being used. A lot of that comes from not feeling like your work is like like the efforts that you're putting in are being ap appreciated, appropriately recognized, rewarded. What am I doing this for? How? And even though there's personal rewards from helping other people, if your life is otherwise so stressful and constrained, and and you're you're just sort of having all these negative emotions from from that, it's really difficult for the any work to feel truly rewarding. So I think being within the that that's a that's a constraint and that's a limitation and you can try to help people learn how to have compassionate conversations and truly connect with with patients and and I think that's that's really valuable and and that can often help people once when they realize that being compassionate and can and connecting is is truly it's a two-way street it, it it helps everybody but it's a it's a it's a, sometimes it's a struggle for human human beings to pull themselves out of their kind of the darkness of the, what they're experiencing and and find a way to do that. Well, if you can, right? If you are in a situation where where you actually feel like you can give up yourself and and um, you are in those having those conversations or in those relationships that are very emotionally trying and um, challenging then it's I think it's just really critical to find balance to find things to recharge whatever it is for that individual whether you know for me it's being near the water on the beach it's doing it's meditating um, being you know physical activity going and watch my son play baseball making sure that you have time for recharging um, and having fun I think I think it's it's really important to just keep create balance and then find ways to share what you're going through, to not keep it all in, to find relationships, whether they're, they're other individuals or groups or, or um, uh, you know, whatever, whatever means to be able to share 
what you're experiencing, both the positives and the, the negatives of all of it. So those are my those are my thoughts about how to stay, you know, relatively healthy and and um, effective in this world as a as a provider for people at end of life. Makes a lot of sense. Um, also, when you look back, and, and I'm curious, this is a, a little bit of a tangent, but also in the same way. When you look back, you know, when you first started this, was it always this self-evident? Did you always know, you know, what to do, or is there learning involved? How? What does the progression look like? What, in, in terms of awareness, in terms of understanding things, like what is it that maybe you understand today that 20, 30 years ago, that was something not really on your radar? Well, I think the most, the, the probably the most significant thing for me is um, that that allows me to do what I do now is that I have no fear of death. I have no personal fear of of what happens when I'm no longer alive in this in this existence in this form, uh, and that's been a spiritual sort of journey and evolution. Sometimes it, I, I have to be I have to be very cognizant that. Other people may not share that same comfort level, so I can't assume that just because I don't fear death that a patient who who's looking ahead isn't, or the families aren't. So I have to be very, you know, cognizant of that and and sensitive. Um, what else? I mean, my my thirty years ago when I was sort of just getting into my career as a physician. I was, I was an emergency physician. I trained as an ER doctor and I went and started working as an ER doctor and obviously kind of on the almost end of the spectrum, other end of the spectrum, we tried to save everybody. And and now, of course, I'm trying to meet people where they are and help people have a better life if, they're, if that's what they're looking for and have a better death if that's where they're at. Um, and so my my journey has has been influenced by a number of specific instances and a couple of kind of epiphanies that have shifted my perspective and made me aware of kind of what my purpose is and what my calling is. So those are the kind of, those are some of the things that, that, and also just getting older, being, you know, in my late fifties and having a certain amount of life experience and wisdom, my own parents' deaths have given me an incredible amount of insight into what the experience is for somebody who's losing a loved one. And um, just also, I, I've sort of developed a, an appreciation for humanity that I, you know, and I know, I know there's a tendency for people to become kind of disgusted <laughs> with humanity and where we're going. And there's a lot of that out there. I feel very much connected and, and, basically have this sense of like unconditional love for human beings and my goal is to help reduce their suffering that's very touching i i love how you mentioned life experience because this is something i also brought up recently there's so many young people that get into the field and and especially when i look at things like end of life but also gerontology and i kept wondering what do you know at 20 when you first come in what it's like to be 60 90 100 right I think um, definitely well, life, life, you know, life experience. And if you don't have the benefit of life experience as a 20 year old or a 25 year old, then what you need to do is you need to spend time with people who do. Mm -hmm. I, that one of one of the things that made the biggest impact on me was just 
as an, as a young ER doctor, just stopping and spending time sitting next to my patients who were in their you know 70s, 80s, 90s, telling me about their their lives, their experiences, their you know their experiences in the war and their their uh, romances and their struggles. So I think getting young people to have the opportunity to be a, around older folks in, in a way with that they're actually having just a, a true connection, not with any other outcome other than just presence and and c- connecting. I think that's really valuable for both sides. It just fills up the older folks, and they get this sense of they get they get infused with the, the vibrancy of the the youth, and the youth get to experience something you know to, to learn about what what life can be like and not to fear being old because a lot of times those 80 90 year olds they're so content they're so happy with their place in life they would never want to go back and have to deal with all the craziness of being in their 20s again so you have thought eh? <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah beautiful and, and I think you, you raise also this point I think it takes uh, not just maturity but but um, the attitude right to have the humility and I think that's beautiful when you meet it in life because there's especially with the young ones we you know sometimes think we know everything and, and really the, that's a proof of maturity right there mm-hmm. I'm actually gonna shift gears towards um, a question I've also been very curious what about this idea of innovation is there any innovation happening in this space innovation um, well so the whole the in general the, the whole palliative the development of palliative care and ways of of being able to fulfill the palliative care relationship better I'm, I, I'm I know there's some innovation there being able to leverage care through technology with uh, video conferencing um, has been really kind of cool and, and I and I think it's been effective I've used it I know other uh, docs who have been able to, to do that somewhat effectively um, so my practice is uh, certainly innovative, and I kind of I, I, um, I've realized recently how I how I think our we're going to sort of get the most exposure and traction and and have the most impact, and that is to help people see that we are actually my practice here in San Diego is actually an alternative to hospice care. It's not just an enhancement. It's not just like good care it's an alternative doesn't mean that hospice doesn't serve a purpose and that there aren't people for whom that's perfectly appropriate but there are a lot of people for whom that's not necessarily appropriate and palliative care may not be adequate but we are I I think innovating and bringing people another option um, for sort of comprehensive holistic care for the last stage of life as they head towards that transition and it's it it's not based on having a specific diagnosis or a certain time of a certain prognosis or life expectancy or disease process or it's basically people who recognize that they want to still live they want to live meaningfully they want to feel like they have options available to them that they're informed and there's and they're their spirit is being touched. It's like com- comforting the mind. No, wait, what do we? What do we? Do? The, the words that we're that we've been uh, working with are calming the mind, 
comforting the body, connecting the heart, and easing the spirit. That's that's really the focus of of my innovative approach to um, caring for people at the end of life. I'll draw a little parallel here that I think is interesting. Um, have you read the the book Mid- Midwives? There's also a BBC um, series that was. So I remember the the series. I saw a couple episodes. I, I'm not familiar with the book. So it was very interesting because when you're looking at that, and, and I think it's uh, maybe not historical fiction, but it, it does bring to, to mind something interesting, which was before there were hospitals, you know, there was home care. And when um, women were, were having those deliveries with babies, there was the midwife that came to the house and that gave her more than just that, you know, medical assistance. Right. And, and I think it's very funny because as I look at what's going on, uh, we're working on maternity projects as well. And I'm, I'm looking at end of care um, life and, and those parallels come to mind because it seems like to some degree we're innovating by going back to a standard maybe that once upon a time was about being surrounded by friends, by right. helping you and who emotionally support you, even though you're also doing the medical part. Right. And that's and, and that's a it's astute. I mean that that's what that's what we've recognized as well. We're kind of looking at the whole the whole model of um, birthing centers and taking birthing out of the dark ages and 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 putting it into the light, so that it was a fam- families were were now being invited in, and you're creating a, an entire event around it, and and it's a celebration. It's no longer this thing that you had to keep kind of everybody else out and just the, the doctor and the patient and the nurse and very secretive dying. We're looking at trying to create a similar um, approach. And so instead of Lamaze classes, we have other classes and helping people learn about what happens as and, and be the most supportive for your loved one as they're kind of heading into that. Having centers where people can come, life completion centers where people can come and learn and and get prepared and learn about all the options even for you know green burials and uh, just there's a whole there's a movement you might be familiar with of um, death doulas which are like midwives for for death and i think there's a lot of value in that they there needs i think they need to be integrated and so that they're also being accepted by the medical world and being utilized and brought in to, to provide support for and not, you know, not trying to be doing it kind of isolated and as a separate whole industry, but integrating that. And so we're, we've met with a number of death doulas. And so you're, you're right on as far as innovating for the whole, for the end of life period. Dr. Uslander's work is truly remarkable. We actually have a link for you if you want to visit and learn a little bit more about his practice and about the great work that they're doing. Um, and we also thought you might want to read a little bit more on this. So our fall reading list is uh, coming out and a lot of the titles are actually related to that. We'll also have um, another guest further on in this season, which are going to um, discuss the Atulio and this book, um, Being Mortal. That's all coming up. Do subscribe if you want to get 
you know, uh, an episode delivered when that does come out. Next week, we have Dr. Jillian Bartlett-Esculin, also working at End of Life Decisions, but on the spectrum of childhood. So very interesting lens there again. And it is coming straight from Montreal in Canada. See you next week. Thank you.